right, so we are on our final week of our three-week series we've been doing, looking at 1 John, the book of 1 John. And so over the last couple weeks, we've been diving in a bit uh, to the book and pulling apart some of the themes and especially looking at this theme of love. And so the first week, we talked about love in action. And then last week, we talked about forgiveness, uh, which are all great. Unfortunately... 1 John is a more complicated book than that. Uh, We've got some positive things going on. Sure, absolutely. But we also have some areas that are really problematic, let's say. So what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be pulling apart some of these things and trying to figure out what is going on in the first place and why were they saying these problematic things and what do we make of it now Is there anything that we can get worthwhile out of it, or is it just all ruined because of it? So remember, remember with me, 1 John was not written by the Apostle John who hung out with Jesus. It was written by this community of followers who kind of were in the name of their exemplar, John. And and this was written maybe... 80 or 100 years after Jesus' death. And so we're, we're talking about a long time later, a lot of development, a lot of uh, situations changing and new conflicts and things arising. And that is going to be important for us today in what we're thinking about. And that's part of what we see this week. We have this community, John's community, if you will, who is very ambitious in what they're doing. Is that a nice enough way to say it? They... um. They believe very strongly in what they stand for. Is that fair? Are you reading between the lines? Yeah? Uh, One of the places we see that is in their language, right? In 1 John's, in some ways, it's not a particularly nuanced perspective because one of the things the author does is divide the world into two and and separate the haves and ne'er the twain shall meet. And, And so he uses this throughout the whole book, this imagery that's divided in two. And so you have light and dark and children of God and children of Satan and, and people who believe that Jesus has come in the flesh and people who don't and people who follow commandments and those who don't and truth and deception and Christ and the Antichrist. And each of these themes comes back over and over and the author is dividing the world into two, clean cut, absolutely no overlap. And John's community has staked out their position, right? And will not budge in the slightest. They have no room for nuance and, note this, no room for compromise. Because here's the issue. Here's Here's what was going on at the time. So recently, John's community had had a schism, had split, been rent in two. And we don't know all the details, but we can definitely tell that it is still really raw. Everything is still so raw from the split. And the other group apparently was part of John's community as well. But the two parties strongly disagreed about something. And so one party started going one way, one went the other. And so the group that's not behind the book of First John, so the folks who left, or maybe the other group left, we don't know, but those folks, the other folks, the folks that the author of First John doesn't like, 
they were very concerned. They were moving in the wrong direction, completely the wrong direction. Because here's what both groups were trying to figure out. They were trying to say, okay, what in tarnation happened with Jesus' life, and more specifically, Jesus' death? Because, see, see, if Jesus is God, how could Jesus die? Everybody knows gods can't die. I mean, everybody knows that, right? And why would God choose such a horrific and shameful way to die at that? And that's what Christians were wrestling with at this time, trying to figure out. And so ultimately, this other group, the folks the author doesn't like, figured out, well, here we go. We'll figure it out. What we, our solution is Jesus wasn't really human. It was just, I don't know, an appearance or something. But because that means he didn't actually suffer. And everybody knows gods can't suffer. I mean, come on. Everybody knows that, right? And so in trying to resolve this quandary, they move in this direction, that Jesus wasn't really human. But the group, the other group, who wrote First John, they pushed back hard. They were like, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. It is vital that Jesus was here in the flesh. He was human. It is absolutely important. And this is such an important issue for them that they split over it. And it's so raw. And this means that after this, the author of 1 John starts to paint the world in black and white. The other group that split off, they were no longer fellow Christians trying to figure out this paradox, right? Or, you know, this problem for which there's no good solution, right? All of a sudden, it's black and white. They're now children of the devil. I mean, so listen to this passage from 1 John. This is how you know if a spirit comes from God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ came as a human, right? That's us, right? Uh, is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus... That's them, right? That is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Wow. Um, Did you guys catch that? So that is such a big swing because you're going from over here, oh, they're now our colleagues, they're our partners, they're part of our community, to all of a sudden, they are Antichrists. (laughs) Does anybody else have whiplash from this? This, this is insane. And how quickly the author moves from one to the other. And the author is railing against these people, and he will not budge, will not compromise, will not say, well, maybe they have a point, will not say, uh, maybe there's something to it, even if I don't agree with them, uh, will not even give them a... It's confusing. Uh, nothing. None of it. It's cut and dry for the author. And we're the correct ones, Right? We're the correct ones. They're not us, and so therefore they're wrong. And since they're wrong about God, right, therefore they must be evil. This community, this author of 1 John, goes way overboard. Like, way overboard. (laughs) Right? I mean, just take a look at this other passage. We are from God. The person who knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
Did you guys catch that? They are literally saying, those people who agree with me, God agrees with. We have the truth, right? Our side has the truth. And the other people, they are in error and not of God. And they're thus, as we mentioned, evil. They're the antichrists, right? And the thing is, it's not just these two passages in this book. They're the two most stark examples, yes. But throughout the book... The whole book of 1 John in this black and white way of seeing things is simmering beneath the surface and sometimes it bubbles up, but it's always there underneath all of the themes and the language and the images that they use and it affects how they write and how they talk and because of this perspective, the author paints the whole book, the whole message with this palette, this absolute Contrasts, these dichotomies, these splitting the world in half, completely clean cut, right? And here's the thing <clears throat> this isn't just a foible of the one community, right? Of, it's not just they're idiosyncratic, they're, you know, it's not just them. It's not just them. This is something we see all over the place, is it not? and perhaps is disturbingly familiar, or perhaps is even more disturbingly familiar when we recognize ways in which it emerges from ourselves, right? Well, of course God is on my side, right? Of course I have the truth, and anybody who disagrees with me must be wrong, right? And here, our author goes a step further and literally demonizes them. We may or may not follow the author in that step, but isn't that an impulse that we recognize? That isn't it even get so much stronger, so much more clear-cut, so much more black and white when we're talking about religion, too? Because all of a sudden, we're not talking about having a strong opinion about, let's say, whether or not Michael Jackson or Mariah Carey's better. Obviously, it's Michael Jackson. <laughs> Duh. Okay. Um, but now that religion's involved, right, you now have a disagreement about what does it look like to be a good person? Or what does it take to get into heaven? Or... Who has access to the truth? And all of a sudden, the stakes have skyrocketed. Because if we, were, if we were claiming to be right and weren't, all of a sudden, that would be earth-shaking to our worldview, right? The foundation upon which we built so much of our life and our perspective, so much that's at stake, is now crumbling, it's not just some trivial thing. It's now my own psychic and existential security, right? It's my sense of rootedness, my sense of having any clue which way is up in the world. All of that is called in question if I admit that now I'm wrong about this stuff. And don't we too often also see in ourselves this other impulse we saw in 1 John that I think I'm right, therefore God thinks I'm right. right? Therefore anybody who disagrees with me is wrong and therefore anybody who disagrees with me is evil. 
right? We must demonize them. And this is a shame, is it not? Because it's disappointing that this stuff's here in First John because there's some really good stuff buried in this passage. But I, I don't know about you, but because of all these flaws, for me at least, it gets really hard to get much value from the passage itself because the excess spoils the whole thing. But without discounting and without putting aside these issues, let us also try to tap in what the author is saying here because I think there is some extremely profound stuff going on as well. The author says, we must test the spirits. We will be at odds with the world. And again, completely black and white, stark. Life just is not that simple. But is it not true that there are messages and ways of being that we pick up that we as Christians cannot abide? I mean, in in sociology lingo, this is called socialization, right? It's those things that people around us teach us, that become part of our milieu, that become part of the air we breathe and get deep down within us where they're in the core of our being and we start acting out of them, right? And the author of 1 John says, you know what? That stuff the world gives you, you can't just go blindly along with it. So, for example, one example. For a long time, uh, in very explicit ways, and continuing now in sometimes more implicit ways, we've received this message that men are by nature superior to women, that men should be the heads of households, that men should be in charge, that they should be the ones with fame and fortune and success and all that. And this way of thinking has woven itself into our society and our social ways of being. And of course, we don't have time to rehearse all the ways that this plays out, right? But, I mean, we see it all the time, do we not? I mean, the the Me Too movement, looking at how predatory males do not get held accountable for their actions. The ways in which some companies still do not pay women adequately for their labor. The ways in which when women are not participating in economic labor, the labor that they are participating in gets discounted. And do we not as well see these spirits, these messages coming in terms of like the ways in which we learn subtle and overt that white people are better? Sometimes explicitly, like say in Charlottesville, in the alt-right. But in the last 60, 70 years, so much of this has moved underground into coded language and dog whistles and, and assumptions and attitudes rather than explicitly stated. And so, but that doesn't mean that the messages delivered by these spirits don't get buried deep down. You can't escape them whether you like it or not. It's, it, these ideas just get lodged in there and reinforced and through all these cultural vestiges and institutions and memories and language. And the author of 1 John replies, you must test the spirits. You must discern what you are receiving what you're participating in, what you're embodying. 
And we as Christians cannot be okay with all of it. Now, of course, as he is wont to do, our beloved dear author loves himself some black and white contrasts. And so he, of course, goes overboard, as we've been seeing. And some Christians go with him and assume that there is absolutely nothing we can learn from the world that's around us, uh, which, you know, is the height of spiritual hubris. But our author does have such a rich point, right? In thinking about the ways in which those things we take into ourselves, those messages and, and themes and spirits and these ways of being and actions and practices that we take into ourselves and adopt and eventually get embedded within us, we need to be assessing all of that in light of the gospel, in light of that which God calls us to be. And if we find that they are not something with which we can abide, then maybe, just maybe, we need a little more of that author of 1 John in us. Just to push a little bit harder back, draw the line maybe a little bit more clear of what I will actively resist because my faith calls me to. I challenge you this week to do some internal work. I challenge you to monitor what is coming in, what messages and spirits are coming into you. How are they affecting you? How are they getting lodged in your soul? And then to ponder, how do you discern the spirits? which messages we do follow as Christians. May you be given the wisdom and clear sight to assess what things within you are of God and what things you need to work to uproot in order to more fully take on that self to which we are called. May it be so.